A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello, and welcome to the 85th episode of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose, the host, and this is the show where we interview interesting people. And that's why I have on Brendan and Claudio this week. So we're kind of figuring out if monkeys are entering in the Stone Age like we humans did. But we don't really know for sure. But what we do know is that Claudio and Brendan are studying capuchin monkeys who are using stones as tools. And they're breaking open food and they have like a little anvil and all this kind of stuff. It's really, really pretty damn interesting to hear about. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode with Brendan and Claudio. We get to learn about what they're studying, what they're kind of seeing with these monkeys. And we also kind of talk about their experience of the studying and the actual uh, methods that they use and all that kind of stuff. So let's get to the episode. Here is Brendan and Claudio right now. Boom, we're rolling. What's up, Claudio? Hey, how are you guys? Doing good. Thanks for being on here, Brendan. Hello. Uh, stoked to talk to you guys. You do. You guys are doing some uh, interesting work. I mean, for sure, right? Yeah, we're doing we're doing science. It's a fun time. <laughs> we're doing science. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, well, I I got hooked into you guys because I you know there's a I'm reading. I just you know enjoy reading stuff articles occasionally pop up or whatever and uh one pops up that says you know our monkeys heading into the stone age which is you know a little grabbing but uh <laughs> and then you guys are involved so let's i mean let's just start with give me a little bit of background on each of you guys if we can just so we know who you are okay um should i go first claudia yeah sure sure all right so my name's uh brendan barrett i guess Technically, in like 11 days, I'll be starting as a, uh, a senior researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Animal Behavior and the University of Constance in Germany. Um, I'm currently at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, and I'm also affiliated with the Smithsonian Institute. Wow. Sweet. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, just before we started all this pandemic, situation i graduated mm-hmm. from uc davis from a master uh, in animal behavior and now i am technically in the max Planck institute you know, of animal behavior but i'm trapped by the pandemic in panama at the smithsonian tropical research institute which is also <laughs> like my host institute in panama um so uh, yeah now I'd like to start a phd um in germany but data collection happens in Panama. So this is probably a good place to be trapped during the pandemic because then I can just start collecting data as soon as it's reopened. Oh, okay. So not a bad place, not a bad place to be, I guess, but yeah. so how long have you been there? I flew here on December 18. Oh, okay. Like just, just, yeah, just before the, the news started to, to create, create chaos worldwide <laughs> <laughs> man okay so let's dig into like tell me about koiba national park and you know your involvement there and what you guys you know how that all got started i guess yeah sure i'll start and then if you want to talk about the more recent stuff after that claudio um so koiba national park is um national park in Panama on the off the pacific coast 
Uh, the main island, Coiba, it lies 20, about 24 kilometers away from the um, western coast of Panama. Um, Coiba is the biggest island in Central America, so it's about 500 square kilometers. It's about the size of like nine to 10 Manhattans, if you were to put them all together. Okay. Um, it's been isolated from the mainland of Panama for about 12 to 18,000 years. I think like recent maps, Claudio, of the sea level has it around like 14 or 15. So they, the range seemed yeah. pretty good <laughs> that yeah. we've been uh, citing in the literature until recently. Um, but, you know, it has a interesting history. Um, when Spanish conquistadors came originally to Coiba, there was a large indigenous population there. Um, unfortunately, like a lot of Central America. Uh, many of them died from disease and also being transported to the Darien part of Panama for gold mining and slavery. Right. Um, so unfortunately, they were completely exterminated by conquistadors. Um, and building on that, the other dark human history, um, Panama was a penal colony from 1919 to 2004. Um, they had anywhere from like 100 to 1,000 prisoners at any time. And for that reason, people didn't go there. Um, and also for that reason, it wasn't really, resources really weren't heavily extracted. So it contains about 70 to 80% of primary tropical forests. That's some of the largest stands of lowland tropical forests in all of Central America. So, and it was gazetted as a national park when, Claudio? Like the 70s? 2004. No, 2004. It was proposed in the 70s. Yeah. So. It was proposed, yeah, in the 70s. Because even though, it, like, people would not go to this place other than uh, police and military people during the military decades of Panama. There would always be one or two uh, naturalists or researchers coming through the Smithsonian that will, like, uh, move uh, or ask requests to whoever they needed to request to be allowed to visit the island. And there is, like, if we see the scientific production on Coiba National or from data coming from National Park from the last century, we will see that it's only like 10 papers in 100 years. Wow. And then as soon as it was like the prison colony like shut down, then we see the production of papers just like going up in a right. very nice scale. So yeah, it's just like everybody was just like like waiting for for like the prison to end and then be more safety place to, to visit. That is crazy. So like, so was the whole island kind of a prison or was it just, they just kind of blocked it all off because there was a prison on it or what was that? They had different like camping spots across the island. Um, I mean, well, each of them is like a just like a, a, a tiny place, but uh, they will distribute it across different places on the island, depending on the type of prisoners they wanted to to keep there. Like Jeez. there are some prisons that we have been to that they are like super creepy because they are like in the middle of the forest, but still they get a lot of mosquitoes when the tide goes up and down. So depending on how the level of torture they wanted to to give prisoners, then they will send them to the nice ones or like the ones on the north of the island are really nice. The ones on the south of the island are like a nightmare. Like not even for camping, for fun. I will not record. That will not be fun. Good God. It's like Escape from New York. It's like literally the whole <laughs> island turned into a prison. It's crazy. And so yeah. there's still the, like the, the structures are still kind of there. You can explore them a little bit. 
some of them. Yeah. 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 Like isn't some of them where there's the Anam, which is the, if there's American listeners, it's like the equivalent of the national park service. Well, there's a bunch of, anyway, I don't want to get bureaucracy details, but they have an Anam station. I think there was a prison there. And also the police station is where another prison was. And we've yeah. hiked around and walked in and you kind of see just the forest regrowing through where prisoners live. And you can see plants there that they like had for food, like different wow. fruit trees. They wouldn't be randomly scattered through the forest. So, and like writing was on the wall and um, it's really, it's eerie, but also strangely beautiful to see these places kind of surrounded by this forest and kind of growing back. But it's, yeah, it's a really interesting place. And one thing I don't think we mentioned is that Quib is the biggest island, mm-hmm. but it's an archipelago. So there's a whole bunch of islands in this ecosystem um, okay. or in this, in this national park. So um, we work currently on, on three of them because that's where the ones that there are monkeys are. But there's a whole system of islands in there. Um, and the guards actually lived on one of the other islands and would commute to work at some of the prisons, so like on a boat in the morning. So. Jeez. That is so crazy. Such a crazy, like, history backstory on that island. I didn't realize that. So, and then, so what was kind of the, uh, what were kind of the effects of that when, when then it was, you know, turned into sort of a national park in 2004? Was it, you know, did it have a lot of negative effects or was it a lot, a lot of it kind of preserved naturally? It, it was preserved naturally even before the prison because yeah, the, the prisoners, for some, I mean, it is a very dense forest uh, mm-hmm. for for local people. They will not walk into this <laughs> um, because there are no trails. I mean, they made some trails to reach some areas, but the place, even during the prison time, it was very preserved. Like you could see the vegetation, the the type of forest is like very mature, and that will take even like more than a hundred years to reach uh, that state. So you can see that that it, it's been preserved. Like some places where they had some like some like roads and and like they even have some little uh, airports, but not like airports, just like for a one tiny flight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you see that those spaces now are becoming uh, are in the process of restoration in a natural way, and it's to reach. Because they are from on the beach to the forest, then you walk like two kilometers and a half in the middle of bushes before you can reach the forest. And, and that could be uh, tiresome because you're exposed to sun and the, the salinity from the ocean. And then walking on this, exposed to the sun for like one hour and a half, you're like completely dead. And then you need to start doing work. And it's like, oh, come on. So it, that, that, there are like two spots that are very challenging on that way, but but yeah, for for people, for I I, I grew, I'm from Chiriki, which is just like uh, and two hours from the island. Mm-hmm. So to me, it will just be a rumor. Like you will never, you would only listen. You grew up listening, like oh, this prison where they in the middle of the Pacific, this island, and like it's a a devil place and right. super scary and you shouldn't go there like never plan to go there and then i was like i want to go there <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i can imagine how the rumors would would swirl with that so that's cool and okay so then tell me um so in 2004 it was turned into a national park and then how do you when do you guys go there how do you get involved 
Yeah, yeah. so what is it? Um, should we talk about Alicia first, I guess? Yeah, so in the even from from the mid nineties, there was this uh, Spanish uh, researcher Alicia Ibanez, who was part of like an international uh, collaboration where they will be looking for plants and some any type of natural resources where they could explore for chemical compounds to make a uh, medicine or, or to make any antibiotics or uh, any type of uh, medical product. Right. And so her job was to go to this island and explore the 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 plant. And then what started just as small expeditions become about like 20 years of expedition. And then she made a book of the flora of the island. And it's like a keystone literature for, for everybody else because, I mean, and also she is like the advisor of everyone who wants to go to that island. There it is. Because, <laughs> because she knows what are the good places, what are places that are easy to access, what are the, the seasons, how long you should stay on the island to keep a good mental state because mm-hmm. after the, it's so isolated. Like you don't have phone reception, there's no internet, there's no electricity. Uh, like the, her, her advice is like don't stay on the island more than 20 days really because uh, otherwise you start losing your mind after that <laughs> after that maybe after being in quarantine with the pandemic we are already training ourselves to be on the island for longer right. but <laughs> but yeah so she um she had in one of her expeditions i guess that around 2007 she was visiting Hikaron Island, and then she saw the the, the monkeys doing the, the hammering behavior. And then she just, as a botanic person, she was like, oh, monkeys are using stone. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. I'm just going to count plants. Like, <laughs> no big <thing>. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then, but she recorded the location just at the GPS and those days. I mean, the GPS available for research were not like as the ones as we have today. And then she passed it to uh, our mentor, Meg Crawford. And then that was on Meg's list, things to do, like, oh, we need to go to this place and explore it and find data and blah, blah, blah. But then because of all the job that Alicia did on the island, there was all this community in the Smithsonian and other institutions that they were inspired to, to just do a bio blip on the island. Oh. And then people come together and then they organize a bio blitz of about 45 people from like 30 institutes from all over the world to come to this island in 2015. And we spent about 40 days total between dry season and rainy season. And I was lucky to be one of the uh, researchers, well, out in those days, a uh, field assistant invited to participate here. And then Meg heard that I was there, so that gave her someone who she knew that will get more familiar with the place. And but those days, Brenda was finishing her his PhD, and so it was just like I have two people to send to Koiwa. Right. <laughs> so okay. She, we then that's when we met uh, and coordinated like a field first field trip in 2017, and started to to explore the area, finding for this particular place that Alicia uh, had visited in Kikaron. And so that's when the whole adventure started because 
the, we didn't have the GPS coordinate that she recorded in those days because somehow between the communication between Alicia and our advisor, Meg, the coordinate got lost. So we were oh, starting God. from zero. Yeah. And, and then they forgot to tell us what island it was on. They're like, oh, we knew what island it was on. And they're like, it's in this park. Yeah. It's the biggest island in, in Central America, just somewhere. <laughs> Here's, go yeah. out for eight days and see what you can do. And the description was like, there are a lot of rocks. Um, the monkeys are there. It's like, yeah, there are monkeys all over on this island. Yeah. So we spent, I think, on the first trip, we had a five days field trip looking for or trying to refine this place. Right. And it was not mm-hmm. until the last day that we saw like a solid evidence that that was the place that we were looking for. And before that, the first two three days everything that we will see was like could this be could this be it was like we were just looking forever it was like you have this island effect of things building on your mind and uh, (laughs) yeah Yeah. it it was it was hilarious like we were walking around like it was like a seven day trip total and then it was like the first day to get takes a day to get out there Mm -hmm. get checked in get camp set up do everything and then we had days where we take boats around and hike Across the like, you know, there's there's no one out here. There's no trails. We walked as much of the island as we could. Like, walked the entire coast of the island. So, we, I don't think we mentioned this, but Hikarone, so is the second largest island in Cueva National Park. Okay. So it's like about the size of Manhattan, a little bit smaller. It's like 20 square kilometers or so, mm-hmm. or um, 2,002 hectares. But um, yeah, so we were just walking around this island and. As you said, we're like, we're going around, we're like, I think this is it. And we're like, these things look like they were split in half. Maybe this is it. Let's take photos. And one of the things is that this is so hard to get out to that we can't, and the monkeys aren't habituated, which means like sometimes the way primatology is conventionally done is you follow the monkeys until they get used to your presence and they're relaxed and they can collect behavioral data from a distance. Right. Capuchin monkeys, that takes six months to a year until you can start collecting data of following them from dawn to dusk. Mm-hmm. And the infrastructure here is such that you can't study them in conventional ways. So what we've been doing is setting up these remote sensors, uh, camera traps and video traps on where we think Stone Tool uses. But so back to the story is that we were walking around, setting up these camera traps, these potential tool use sites. Every day we're like, oh, this is definitely it. This is it. Like, I think this is it. Let's set up a camera here just in case. Like, maybe that's just the tide blowing shells around and putting rocks on top of them. Oh, yeah. And then on the last day, we originally had taken boat around the island and places looking for these trees called almendros or almendros, almendros in plural. Sea almonds is the common name. Terminalia catapa is the scientific name. We were like looking for them from the coast, identifying spots where you could find these these trees. And we saw this one spot on the far west side of the island where we're looking at it and we're like, we have to check out that there's so many of these trees, but we don't know if we can walk there mm-hmm. because there's cliffs on the one end. Um, and then I don't remember if it was our idea or the boat captain's idea. But um, a boat captain, Alicia, who's just like amazing, has worked there. He he just knows the island very well and knows the ocean really well. And like, he's probably the most valuable member of this research group <laughs> sometimes. Right. Um, we like, we threw a bunch of cameras into dry bags, put on life vests. He backed up the boat into this like 
cove that was surrounded by rocks and we like jumped out and swam in to the coast, got off, climbed up the rocks, walked up, set up a camera. Then we walked and we're like, Oh, this is, this is tool use. Oh, we were wrong. I think we were wrong in everything else. And it was just so obvious that like, there's just smashed crabs, piles of debris. It's like a bar floor covered in peanuts. Wow. These monkeys have just been opening up stuff. And it's just like a litter of just food that they've been opening up and just like a rock sitting on a crab. Um, on this like little stone anvil and next to that was this big wooden anvil where we found other tools and all this other debris that they were processing. And, um, we're like, this is definitely it. We set up the cameras. We only had three cameras and we had to get out of there before the tide rose. So we really only spent like what, 40 minutes, half an hour at this site. Yeah. And we had to swim out immediately. And then we came yeah. back like three months later and we, we caught it on, on footage. And it was actually the same anvil that Alicia found, what, 10 years before or so. So it was the same exact wow. log that they've been using for at least 15 years. Man, so, that is so yeah, cool. Yeah, it, it, it was all funny because it, it was like, yeah, about like 40, 45 minutes. And then it was just like all the scary part of jumping off the boat because uh, we were in the low tide and then going to check the place and see that this is actually a stone tool evidence and then get excited but set the cameras because we needed to make sure the cameras were like set correctly to get properly the data and then get back and it was just like too much things going on first <laughs> for only 45 minutes like being stressed happy excited and serious <laughs> and focused on the job but at the same time it's just like okay this is probably too much for 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 people's mind <laughs> right yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah but yeah and then, and then, yeah. Oh yeah then we went back like three months four months later we got to explore that coast more it was just like there were so many more sites it was just such intensive use, like things that have been clearly used for decades. No, not clearly. Probably, most likely used for decades, conditional on evidence that we have to do science to figure out. Um, and it's just, there's just tools all over the place. And it's something that like, you couldn't mistake it for anything else. Really? It's just something very intentional and left behind. Um, so, yeah. Man, and then, so cool. uh, as we have been going, because we go uh, three times a year. Because uh, that's about a good time to replace the batteries and the memory of the of the camera. Mm-hmm. So now every time we go, we still learning after uh, three years of going to this place. We keep learning uh, on every trip. And then, but I remember a funny one that I think it was on the third trip that uh, there was the idea of removing the stones so that we could weight them properly in a more like settled place and i was refusing to do that because like we don't know if that's going to disrupt the monkeys let's not do that mm-hmm. and then <laughs> and then brendan meg they were like no and also that was my first time working with capuchin monkeys so i they were more experienced about how the monkeys could react to like this type of thing and i was just like no let's not move the stones because I was like worried the monkeys will abandon the place or whatever. Like, I, I, I don't know. I was just like an, a, a, a new person in Capuchin Monkeys. Right. <laughs> and so they convinced me that it would be fine. And then I was like, okay-ish with letting that happen. 
Um, but then we removed the stones, and then when we went to put the stones back, they have replaced all the stones. It was like insane. I was like, what? I was fighting for you, monkeys, and you betrayed me. Well, just re- so you took all you took the stones away to measure them or, or weigh them, but then they had totally replaced the stuff that you took away. Yes, yeah. Wow. Like we yeah. went back like a day and a half or two days after we replaced them, and then in each of the the, the spots that they were doing the hammer stone, they had new stones. Wow. And now after data, so much data collection, we've seen in some of the photos that sometimes there is some sort of selfishness going on because some individuals they will move stones and get their own stones or some of the stones get broken because that is not the right material and then they anyways have to replace them but that's those are things that we didn't or i didn't know in 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 that day were deciding to remove or not to remove the stones to weight them and get data yes So you, yeah, you can look at like the camera trap sometimes, and sometimes they'll just use what's there. Um, and other times, you know, you'll see a, a monkey will go up, look at the stone that's not there. And there's a lot of like streams around there. And I think like a lot of stones just get washed down by erosion, most likely. Right. So they go and grab a cobble out of the river and they'll carry that up and then use that to open up most of these almendras. And like, they're, they're, they're big stones. So I think these guys are technically the smallest body mass primate that uses stone tools. And from the specimens from Koiba collected in 1900, they're smaller than mainland capuchins, which is a typical thing on islands. Things often can shrink down. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're using stones that are like 1,500 to 1,500 grams to 2,000 grams. And an adult capuchin weighs three, three and a half thousand kilograms. An adult male, big adult male might get a little bit big more, but they're a third to like a half of their body weight sometimes. Jeez, that's crazy. So it's yeah. like, they're probably not just doing it for kicks, but right. we have science to gather evidence for that. Yeah. <laughs> so. so when you guys heard about, when you were kind of first told about, you know, there's, there's monkeys here that could be using stone tools and stuff was, and then when you finally got there, was that on par with your expectations or was that kind of, were you guys kind of blown away by what you found? Do you want to go first? I, I was, yeah, because when I first heard about that from during the Koiba BioBleach in 2015, I was just like, oh yeah, whatever, monkeys are using stones. I was not familiar with anything from the literature on, on capuchin monkeys or primates at all. I come most from, I jumped from studying um, orchid bees. Um, oh, I, like I, I come from studying like orchid bees, then vipers, uh, and then I switched to mammals. And then that's what I'm more like settled now. And then, but then it was like first time exposed to primate literature research. So I was just at the beginning like, oh yeah, the monkeys are using stones, whatever. Right. That's just a normal thing. Because you, 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 you have heard about the stone age and then uh, that we did it at some point so other monkeys could do it. But I didn't realize that, uh, that it would be such a big thing for like only of the other primate species, only a few of them are using stones now in the way humans did it thousands of years ago. So that's when I thought, I was like, oh, this is actually a big deal. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, because when you frame it that way, it is it is fairly unusual, isn't it, for this to happen? Yeah, um, and like from my background, like I guess I'm more. I was I don't know I studied plants and insects before I ended up doing primates, but I'm I'm kind of mostly like theoretically motivated. So a lot of my interests are in social learning and cultural evolution, and kind of how social learning helps animals um, acquire behaviors like tool use and um, how that helps them make, enable them to survive in rapidly changing environments and just make a living. Um, so for my PhD work, I did research on capuchin monkeys. I've studied them since two, since 2008. I'm with habituated groups in Costa Rica. So I had spent like four years of my adult life following capuchin monkeys up from dusk till dawn. I could like tell them apart better than I can tell most human beings apart. Wow. Like, but which is not good for my social life with humans. At least. Um, but one of the things that was really interesting to me was that in, if you look at the evolutionary tree of primates um, in capuchin monkeys, there's robust capuchins, which are like the um, it's a new genus called Sapajus, which has got updated in the beginning part of the century. Um, and then they're the robust capuchins are a little bit bigger. Um, for pop culture reference, like The Hangover, I think that's a chain of movies. That was a robust capuchin in that. Um, and then the grass owl capuchins are the Central American and Northern South American capuchin monkeys, um, which are what these ones are in, in all in Panama and Cueva National Park. Um, so they split apart from each other about five million years ago. Um, and for reference, the human chimpanzee divergence part was six to seven million years ago. So it's like a comparable split a little bit sooner um, than, than chimpanzees and humans. Mm-hmm. But one of the stark, startling behavioral differences is that Sapajuice, the South American robust capuchin monkeys, most of the species have been reported using stone tools and using them pretty frequently. But in Cebus, um, the grass isle capuchins, that hadn't been reported. Although they do have a wide array of cultural traditions, they're super intelligent. Um, they're often trained as like helper monkeys for paraplegics. Um, they have been oh, really? used for that. So they're really smart and they socially learn a lot. And for a lot of people who study robot or grass owl capuchins, they seem entirely capable of it. Um, and I think the cool thing about seeing this in Koiba is that you have a counterfactual example of these grass isle capuchin monkeys using stone tools. So instead of, in some ways, the question is, instead of asking why is it that these monkeys use stone tools, it's almost more of an interesting question is, why is it that don't all the other grass isle capuchin monkeys use stone tools? And so yeah. here, the really cool thing about this population is that you have a counterfactual example where this goes on, and then you have a ton of well-studied field sites where this doesn't go on, so you can actually do a comparison. Um, between non-tool using and tool using populations, which it isn't as feasible in things like chimpanzees because it's pretty widespread. Um, robust capuchins, it's probably not as feasible because it's pretty widespread. Although it's it's and it's you know it's a little bit different. But the only other thing it might be comparable when within primates is these populations of um, macaques in Thailand off the coast of uh, Thailand and Myanmar, who are also on islands, and they're the only species of these macaques that habitually use stone tools and they all live on islands. So one of our big questions is what is it about islands in particular, like Cueva National Park that 
is so conducive to innovative behavior and uh, stone tool use. And it's not just in primates. So you can look at things like New Caledonian crows off the coast of Australia. They habitually use stick tools, Galapagos finches. Um, not sticks, sorry. I have to correct myself. It's just like Ponidus palm. That they'll cut open and modify and use to extract grubs. Um, Galapagos finches will use sticks on the, on the um, islands, of, the different islands in Galapagos Islands. It's redundant. But they use sticks to access things in cactus spines. And Hawaiian crows have also been shown to use tools. And they're actually being reintroduced into the wild now because they almost went extinct. But there's just, so there's something about islands that's conducive to tool use. And that's kind of one of the things that we're trying to understand um, in like broader broader scale across capuchins or grass owl capuchins and also kind of doing some comparative work. So we're starting to do some comparative work between these macaques and these capuchins because they both use stone tools and both live on islands. They actually both open up some identical resources. So you can do some cool comparative natural history. Yeah. Like wow. the almond, the almond species tree is the same species on both places because oh. this almond tree is originally from Asia. So it's, and it's just cool to have this model where you can compare things uh, at a very fine scale. So, yeah, so what are kind of the, the findings that you guys are getting, if you have anything yet, of why, of why islands lead to this tool use like that? Yeah, there's a couple things. Um, I think one of the things is that islands often have a reduced... So there's this thing, classic thing in the ecology of the Australian bioland called the island theory of biogeography. So oftentimes when islands get further away from the mainland and when they're also smaller, you get a subset of species that are available on the mainland. So this can mean for the capuchins that, um, so like on Hikarone, I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but there's like an order of magnitude fewer plant species on Hikarone than there are on Koiba, and there's far fewer on Koiba than there are in the mainland. Right. So they don't have a wide variety of dietary things that they could use. So one of the ideas is that because there isn't as much to eat there, a variety of things might need this to open thing. They might need to do this to make a living in this ecosystem. Um, islands are often more prone to like edge effects in El Nino cycles and La Nina cycles in this part of the world. So there could be some ecological stress. Um, and there's also no large terrestrial predators on this island, which Claudio has been doing from the camera traps and the bioblitz has recently published some work about that. And so, well, yeah. So why is that significant Claudio about there being no, no predators like that? Well, um, when we have, um, a place with predators, it is very, there is a lot of trade off on an individual for whatever species, even if it's a, a ground animal or an arboreal animal. Like for ground animals, what's the time you go out to get food or to trying to find someone to mate with? These are very important decisions for an animal like uh, Naguti, which is a small rodent from, from Central America. So for that animal, it's very like, uh, it's risky all the time to take a decision. For arboreal animals, it's a bit more safety if they can move through the canopy because that way they avoid the, the ground predators right. in most of the distribution. But there is also trade-off because moving through the canopy is not as simple. It's not like you don't have like two meters wide 
a path to move. You have like thin branches and some of them could break or the connectivity between the trees is not always complete. Uh, so you have to jump and to have to manu- maneuverate a, a lot during the day. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of investment of energy to, to move through the canopy. And so, but if you remove that pressure of predators from, from the equation, then you can get access to resources on both ways. You can, we think that the capuchin monkeys on Coiba National Park have the capacity to reach resources on the canopy and on the ground. And so far we have been collecting data for what they are collecting on the ground. We we see that they go for the, the hammerstone tool places and they get a lot of resources there. But also we see them getting coconuts and then they, that happens all over the island, which is always funny to see evidence of the monkeys <laughs> doing that. Um, but then also how that also affects the dynamic between the group, uh, one of the things that we are now interested in. So you have Koiba Island and Hikaran Island, the two largest islands in, in this park that at some point were connected to the main line before the last glaciation mm-hmm. and then this species uh, just like subset from island to island until we reach Koiba with only like eight mammals and then Hikaron with like five mammal species and on that list there are no predators so for both islands then the monkeys now they can just come to the ground start exploring more and it's more like a it's very free for them to, to to do, and then the release of not only the release of pressure, but also the the uh, this assignment of investment. Like now, what in, on the mainland, what monkeys assign energy on, like traveling, then the monkeys perhaps can do it on hammering stones because they can just do it. They have the it's when you have money and you don't know what to spend the money on and then just go for whatever you want. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, because isn't that kind of similar? Like, didn't something like that kind of happen with humans where once kind of our basic, you know, needs and, you know, for food and stuff were kind of uh, more provided for and stuff, we just kind of had more time for thinking and developing new inventions and that kind of stuff? Yeah, like, yeah, it's definitely like this idea where you know, there, it's when one of the, yeah. So I'm going to take a step back. So with the kind of the affordance of free time that they might get. So like the absence of predators here and the, the work that Claudio has done, like they're on the ground so much more from camera traps that you can see. So they spend so much more time on the ground and their behaviors on the ground are, are totally different. So, you know, they will be on the ground from, dawn till dusk, whereas in a normal population, they'll be up in the trees at those times of dawn and dusk when there's often predators around. They'll, they'll nap on the ground, like as the sun's going down. And this is, so they have video traps of of capuchins just like sleeping in big groups with like infants on the ground when the sun's going down, which is something that you would never see populations doing on the mainland. So it's just like this absence of predators permitting them to go down and explore the ground it allows them to interact with tools more. But if you think about predation, like these trees and a lot of times stones and these anvils, they 
are predictable in space. Stone tool use requires concentration, arguably, if you want to do it well. Um, and it's also really loud. So something where you're, you're distracted, predictable in space, and making a lot of noise, it's like, if I was a predator, I would just be lazy and hang out there. So there might be something about this predation thing that reduces the costs of doing it. And it's, we think it's a really important for at least the capuchins and maybe more broadly in human evolution, um, part of why they're using stone tools on Hikaron and also another population on Koiba, which we recently found. Um, but also this other thing about like this other plausible thing, which I don't, you can't actually, I don't think you can test this empirically, but when you have downtime and free time, the creative affordances to do stuff, um, you might be more likely to interact with this material and come up with this solution. Um, it may not be the intention going out, but if you come up with it in your downtime, you can could become incorporated as a habitual part of the behavioral kind of repertoire. Right. And like this is similar in like a lot of the other anecdotally um and other capuchins I work with in, in Costa Rica, they have all these weird bond testing rituals where they'll like play games and pass rocks in between each other's mouth and try to fish them out and stick their fingers in each other's eye sockets like two knuckles deep. And sniff each other's hands for like two hours at a time. <laughs> and it's just like weird stuff. And, we, you know, there's theories about it's like a bond testing ritual. It's important stuff for group and social relationships. Um, but this goes on the most anecdotally, like in the dry season when it's super hot and they're just sitting around a water hole or the river because there's like not much else to do because it's too hot to travel around <laughs> anywhere else. So there's something like maybe about this downtime that's really conducive to this this innovation, but there's also like a clear like a clear story that the predation reduced predation risk is also key to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like to, to give scales. It's like on on Barro Colorado Island, which is uh, an island in the middle of the canal with about thirty individuals of uh, ocelot, which is their one of their main predators. Uh, on this island, in contrast to Koiba and Hikaron, like on Koiba, they come to the ground at least 50 to 60 times more than on BCI, on Barra Colorado. And then on Hikaron, uh, maybe a factor of data collection, but they go to the ground up to like 200 times more wow. than on, on BCI, where they are predators. And it's not just ocelot, but other species. And when when you start seeing like when when we started to to evaluate this, it was striking to me because I have been processing camera trap photos for about five years from Central Panama, and I don't remember more than fifty photos of capuchin monkeys across all those years. I was like when we collected the the, the camera traps from the Coiba Bio Blitz in two thousand fifteen. About 80% to 85% of all the photos were about capuchin monkeys on the ground doing something. And I was like, why there are so many photos of capuchin monkeys? Like, because <laughs> as uh, you expect, like a community of mammals, but here it was not a community of mammals, it was just a community of capuchin monkeys doing different behaviors, different individuals, and you can even recognize individuals. So uh, that was like interesting just to contrast the based on photo trap on, or, or photograph the amount of time that is invested on the on the ground and then whereas in the main line 
they come to the ground for very short times, they also perform very little activity. Whereas in Coiba and Hicaron, we have photos of the monkeys doing everything, like Brendan say, like playing or exploring, napping, uh, just by scanning the environment, thinking, like getting selfies. I mean, the camera trap per se is a new item for them. Right. So they're curious about it, and then they go and check and get in front of the cameras. And, and in the meantime, they're being recorded multiple times. So we have a lot of capuchin monkeys selfies uh, from, from every, ex- yeah, from every expedition. They haven't taken an SD card yet that we know of. Well, if they took it, we wouldn't know. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no cases. So. Yeah. But they move the cameras. And they, um, the cameras, they have like some cable to attach it to the tree. And they move that. So we have to tighten the, the cable as much as we can so that the monkeys don't move it. Then the camera has like a, a, pro- a protector plastic for the lens. They remove that for most of the cameras. It's like these monkeys are super curious. And there's even this camera of one that has like a stick going to like pick the, like just to play with the cameras. Like these monkeys are insane. I mean, their capacity, mental capacity, just too much. Right. Man, that's so cool. Yeah. And like the other thing that's really striking, like, when you're walking through the forest, like if you see capuchins normally, you hear things up, you find them by, you hear branches move or you hear vocalizations, but it's, it's totally different because the population densities on Cueva and particularly in Hicaron are so high. Like it's, it's just so many monkeys and it blows my mind after working in other places in Central America and they, they're all on the ground and all spread up. So you don't hear them in the same way. You just hear these things on the ground walking up and then they all run up. And it's like the opposite of, the way you find monkeys anywhere else. You just don't hear them in the trees. So, man, oh man, this is so cool. Yeah. And then, so, I mean, I, I don't know if there's an answer to this, but how does this stuff kind of like, how does it first happen? You know, when, if there's a, a monkey using a tool, is it just kind of one guy who generally figures it out and then everybody kind of learns from that? Or what's, do you have any ideas of that? We're from these observational things that we have, like, that's entirely plausible. That's probably most likely is that, you know, this is not taxonomically widespread. And I think, I think it's safe to say, but you always need the evidence that this is something that was um, innovated and then spread through the group by social learning, cultural transmission, call it what you will. Um, and in some of the other work I've done in, in Capuchins, like they will learn how to do behaviors pretty quickly and they'll, copy the most successful behaviors um, when they're opening up other fruits and like solving other foraging puzzles. Um, so there's, there's good evidence that this species socially learns foraging behaviors and cultural traditions. But one of the things that, so you know, we're, we're working on the assumption right now that this is in part socially learned and culturally transmitted. Um, and we have some ideas to do some foraging experiments to kind of get better experimental evidence for it, like remotely kind of some stuff with stone tools. Um, but one of the things that we're, another big question we have is that on Hikaron in particular, uh, Claudio and I have walked all of the coasts of Hikaron, a lot of the streams and explored a fair amount inland. And this island's crawling with, crawling, all filled with monkeys. <laughs> They're not crawling, but, um, and the question is like, 
this part of the island, which from the camera trap we think is one group, this is the only part of the island where we can find any evidence for stone tool use, despite all these resources being available, all these fruits, all these hermit crabs, all these Halloween crabs, all these marine snails, all these things that they open up are widespread or common throughout the island. But it seems to be really localized within this one group. And that's kind of like a big puzzle that we're trying to figure out. Um, and one of the things that we were a little bit concerned about is that if this is only in one group, which on Hickorone is the evidence we have, we don't want to do anything that would like modify their behavior generally or make them less likely to do it. So we're really careful about how we work there. And we have like very, it's like a lightweight backpacking kind of camp setup. Mm -hmm. And we don't interact with the animals that much. Um, actually, we don't interact with them at all. We just set up the camera traps and they yell at us when they see us and they watch and they're interested, but they watch from a distance. But okay. um, yeah, so like Mark, one of our big questions is why is it that it's only this one population on Hickorone? And also in the first year of camera traps on Hickorone, we had, they use them almost stone tools almost every single day like 80% of days or something, they'll use stone tools um, at some of the sites that we just keep getting repeat samples. But we never observed a female using a stone tool um, on Hickorone. We, we observed it in one camera trap image that I've seen in the past three years, but haven't gone through them all. Um, and the question is, why is there this startle? Why do we detect this? insane sex difference where it's almost completely non-existent in one sex, but yeah. not the other. So is there an answer to that or do it, do we just not know? We can speculate. Um, <laughs> I think, well, I have one kind of crazy idea behind it. Um, I think one of the things that might be important to see is we, we were supposed to go back to the field in January and March, but due to coronavirus and other things, our, our fieldwork got some things or some limitations. Um, mm -hmm. One of the ideas is that they may not do it as closely to the coast. Um, they, if they're using stone tools, they might be using it kind of in the riparian habitats further up and opening up hermit crabs and Halloween crabs and other fruits. So we're just not detecting it. Right. So that's a possibility where we have to do some other sampling at spots where it's not like trees. So it's not as predictable in space there's, so there's not like a tree in an anvil it's like they'll find a crab grab a stone out of the stream and kill it and eat it I see. um so it's harder to to capture so there's that possibility is that we're not detecting it mm -hmm. um the other possibility is that this is a long and convoluted if you want to talk about behavioral ecology is that um normally in capuchin monkeys males are the dispersing sex so they grow up in a group and typically, and the groups are structured where it's females. So females live with their families and their kin within a group. The males will typically migrate when they're about five years old to another group and try to immigrate in and be accepted, which they're typically not. The number one cause of male capuchin death is violence and intergroup encounters from other males. Because there's a lot of stuff about breeding opportunities and risks of infanticide. So it's really costly were male to migrate to another group, but they can't stay in their family group and breed with their siblings. Um, they're actually a lot better at avoiding incest than humans are. Um, but uh, oftentimes, 
particularly not oftentimes, sometimes, especially in high density populations, um, the dispersal tendencies can reverse for reasons I won't go into details about. So it's possible that on Hoiba or Hikaron in particular, that instead of females dispersing, males are the um, males are the natal sex and females are the dispersing sex. So one of the reasons this may be localized, if only males are doing it, is because females are dispersing and they're not bringing this behavior or knowledge with them. And the males are the ones that are just staying there, if this pattern holds true. Um, so we have to do a bunch of genetic work to kind of see if you can find signatures of the social system to see if the males or females are dispersing to kind of get a better idea of this. Um, we also might not be, we may not have found something yet, which is another possibility, but along where we look, we're pretty sure. Um, but another thing we recently think is that Claudio actually discovered this on a trip um, right before I joined was that we found a second population on Koiba that likely independently innovated this behavior. Um, when this, and, these, and these two islands have been isolated for, you know, as we said, 12 to 18,000 years. So we have a second population that we can do comparisons between two different caption groups in Koiba National Park, but they both independently innovated it. And in this population, in the few camera trap images we have, I've seen males and females doing it. So we have to do a lot of camera trapping and genetic work and observations to kind of figure out exactly what the answer is, right. if we can figure it out. Yeah. So, yeah. When Brenda says if we can figure it out, that means that we have three years trying to get DNA data from these uh, capuchin monkeys. And because they are not habituated, then ideally we we could use a blood sample. That's the best for DNA. Mm -hmm. But that will mean uh, like uh, trapping the individuals because they are not habituated. When you get close to them, they just like they go away. Right. So our best try is to use a hair trap or to try to when they are like around us then to see where they deposit fecal sample on the on, on the on the bushes. Mm -hmm. And so that is just a matter of uh like very random, very okay. we have very few in contrast to the to the sampling that we have done, the sampling effort, we have very few samples. Mm -hmm. uh, just because it's so difficult and then we I mean we have been improving a lot during the last more more on the last year but uh, because it was just like trying an error try an error try an yeah. error and it was just like these monkeys don't they're like i mean it's, it's just insane to see how to get data on them right. yeah. yeah yeah so we get yeah we get the the fecal sample dna which i haven't met, i don't know if i mentioned this to you claudio but they figured out whole genome sequencing from white-faced capuchin fecal dna so we can do that from the feces now, but it's hard to get feces because the monkeys run away from us and it's all luck. Yeah. And we can kind and of it's like... Not, it's not like a lot of fecal sample noise. It's just like yeah. a little bit that get like dispersed. Depending on what they're eating, if it's eatable or not. Well, I won't go into the details about capuchin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm knowledgeable on the topic. Um, and also, so we've been like kind of... Because we do non-invasive sampling and like if we found like a... You know, we just do non-invasive sampling, and like we find a capuchin skeleton, that would be great for a bunch of reasons, and you could get DNA out of that. But we haven't found one. Found a bunch of howler monkey yeah. skeletons, 
but we also do these hair traps. So we've been kind of like trial and error, modifying non-invasive hair traps where, you know, the monkey can reach in and double-sided tape will capture some hair from their arm. And from that, you can extract DNA and you know, do stuff like estimate evolutionary divergence times and estimate stuff about their social systems and do all the wonderful things that you can do with genetics, which we right. have collaborators working on. But we have export permits, which are the fun part before we figure out answers. Jeez. So, oh, it's really hard to transport hair and feces across international borders. It requires really? a lot of your Oh, yeah. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. Stuff like I just, you know, to me, it's just like, yeah, just go do this. But yeah, the, the methodology and the, all the red tape you guys have to go through is just something I wouldn't even, you know, yeah. begin to think about. And Cloudy and I are both a little um, crazy. So the logistics of this work is apparently very, very challenging. So like, aside from doing all the paperwork and coordination, like figuring out how to get out here, set up a camp, get all the permits, have all the safety protocols, you know, know when you can get to the field site. Like one other thing we didn't mention is that you can only hike to this field site during like a two or three hour window um, with the tides and you have to hike along the beach across like the intertidal and like climb a bunch of wet rocks. And it's like not, you know, we have to be, we have a bunch of safety protocols that we do to make sure everyone can, can get there, but it's like, right really logistically challenging. And if anything goes wrong, like you're out there on, we have satellite trackers and sat phones have access to that. But like we had to deal with a lot of figuring out logistics to even be able to do, to do work out here. And mm-hmm. we don't realize that because this is just like, Oh, we'll just figure out how to do this. Right. And then when we brought yeah. like, so we mentioned behind Meg, the scenes, behind yeah, the we mentioned Meg Profit going. earlier, who is like Claudio's, PhD advisor and I guess my collaborator who we were all at UC Davis at one point in time in California. Mm-hmm. Um, when Meg came out there for the first time, she's the director of the, the Max Planck Institute of, of the ecology of animal societies group at the Max Planck Institute for animal behavior, where we are based out of slash will be based out of in like five days. Um, and she's also a professor at the university of constant. So when Meg came out there, and some of our archaeologist collaborators, they're just like, how did you guys do this? And we're just like, I don't know. <laughs> did it, I guess. Did it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. It, it, the logistic is just impressive. Like, I have been, as a lo- even as a local person, like, I've been dealing with this. And I dealt with logistics in, in that end, in the border with Colombia, which is also another rough place to do field work but nothing like Koiba it's just like above the level like you have to deal with things as on how much water you need to take for the amount of people and the amount of faith that you will be there on Icaron because there is no water sources uh, accessible to the camping spot uh, to us like uh, the food how much food do we need and the when we go to the from the camping spot to the Stuntal Youth site, we have to consider the, the tide in which hours of the day can we go to that place. Mm-hmm. And even in some during rainy season, which the first the rainy seasons are always fun because <laughs> there is always and with with climate change varying so much from year to year in the last decade, it's hard to predict that that there will be a, a steady uh, weather conditions when you go there. And 
there has been field trips where we go and then when when we try to reach the stone to leave site then we can't because the schedule of the site say that it will be low tide but when you go to the site and start walking along the beach then you see that the tide is no high no low it's just like in the middle and it stay like that for days and hmm. it's just something related to super moon and the and the way and the tide uh, and the, and this is the pacific water so like just like super crazy that um that we, on, on during rainy season it's more challenging to even to the camping spot because this super tight they can reach all the way in to where we are camping so we don't want to be there when there are these super tight that will just take us into the ocean yeah right <laughs> so yeah it, it it is interesting <laughs> but it's you fun i mean those things to the tides yeah well, to that? me it's just like playing mario kart yeah <laughs> yeah it, it reminds yeah. me a lot of like the ghost in super mario 3 where you have to like turn and like <laughs> right yeah make sure it doesn't chase you then looks at it and then run while you have the opportunity but like you know claudia and i have done a lot of the the try the learning from our experiences to like kind of know when we can do stuff but like you know we were you know like we've both we both know exactly how to do this because we've both been caught out by tides and have had to wait eight to 10 hours until we can continue our hike. <laughs> right. So, Sounds uh, fun. We, we have a good system down now, yeah. but, um, but yeah, we're, we're kind of like really just starting to get into, into full gear with this because I said like, it's so logistically challenging. It's taken, it's taken like three years to kind of know what's possible mm, because okay. no one's, there's such a little research presence in this park and you know, aside from Alicia, some people that collected birds in 19, Alexander Wetmore collected birds in the 50s. Um, the group of Panamanian ecologists in the 90s and some people working with the, in the park and like some British dude in 1900, like people really haven't worked here. So we're kind of always figuring out and the BioBlitz, we're figuring out how to do work out here and what's going on, which makes it like super exciting because there's tons of opportunity for just basic natural history, biodiversity exploration, and kind of like important information that we need to gather for conservation. Like, like you, um, Pedro, who's one of our awesome collaborators and field assistants, um, is an ornithologist and Claudio just published a paper where they're, what's the, what's the bird? There's like a ton of seabirds and tons of endemic species on Coiba and Hikaroni. You guys just kind of expanded that species list. Yeah, so it is funny because um, Alexander Wetmore is one of like the greatest ornithologists uh, in in, for, in Panama. Like he made a, made a lot of contribution, and he has one of the bestseller books in, in in New York. I think for one some years ago, and then going to this place, the Cuba National Park, and trying to do a checklist of birds where in a, the same place where you know that uh, this mastermind of ornithology did work is just like scary. But uh, we realized that out of all the islands that we visited on the on the park, he didn't go to Icaron. <laughs> I mean, he visited it one time, but it was just like on a window of two hours based on his notes. And then so he didn't record that any birds from this place. And so Pedro has been doing... Uh, the 
burden for since I know since he's probably 17. So mm. out of a thousand species in Panama, he can identify about 500 species without the book. Wow. So, which is just like, I can only do 10 species and that's probably a lot. But, <laughs> but then he can, he has these skills that while he, like, like while we are walking to deploy cameras, he's just like listening and recording and like taking notes and, or even like after breakfast, like we will rotate, who will go to do dishes. And then he would always like, I want to go and do dishes. Until then, I realized that he wanted to go to do the dishes because that's near a, a stream. And so near the stream, the vegetation sort of goes down. And th- then the birds jump from one place to another. Right. And so he will spend, like if Brendan and I go to do dishes, we will spend 10 minutes. He will spend half hour. Just because between every decision will be like distracting, looking for a bird and then taking notes. And it's just like, but then out of all this fun adventure, Coyvan uh, Hikaron also on the continental, uh, where the continental trail ends. So that's when you move into deep waters. And then we can start seeing some of the uh, birds that people will spend a lot of money. I mean, people that is into birding, they will spend a lot of money to go on open waters to see these uh, birds and then we have them right there in, in, in Icarita hmm. which is just the, uh, on the south of of, uh, of Icaron and then we also have macaws, the scarlet macaws they they come on March around March to also eat the almond trees and a lot of warblers which is, there's a, a lot of these uh, migratory birds coming all the way from North America. And because they are lowlands, when you go and see the lowlands vegetation cover in Panama, on the mainline, there is actually not much. So some of these species, they come to Coiba to spend winter because the vegetation and the resources are available for them as a refugee during winter. So it's really like cool to see different species of birds and, and, and even to get them on camera traps uh, like the nocturnal species we have we are more likely to, to photograph them on the cameras than to observe them right yeah that makes sense yeah well so we also like expanded the range we have to publish this still the like of coral like coral snakes in the new in the, in the americas so like every time we go there we kind of find something that hasn't been described and there's a ton of really important um conservation basic natural history work that we have to do here in addition to our our the bigger questions that we're trying to address so Mm -hmm. yeah so is what you guys are kind of doing is that kind of opening it up for more people to come in and and do their research yeah so from the smithsonian institute um they officially now have a uh an island that was a, a heritage from someone who bought it uh, when you were allowed to buy islands decades ago. So wow. this person gave the island to Smithsonian, and, and it's, it's, a big, it big, it's big enough to, to build a, a field station. So mm-hmm. they're in the process of like uh, renovating, because now the station is the old house that used to be there for like, I don't know how many decades. But now Smithsonian is like working on that and also trying to 
get uh, uh, funding to promote science going on in this place, but also education, like through three courses that will spend some time to do marine or biogeography uh, courses. Um, and then from the Panamanian side, there is the Secretary of Science, and I see it has pushed to, to promote uh, another uh, research station on Coiba Island, on another sector, so that it could be like a platform to contribute between the two institutions. The other funny thing that we haven't mentioned before in, in the relation to this is that because the park is so new, they have also been doing a lot of trial and error with the policies on the island. So every time we go, there is a chance that we will face new bureaucracy requirements or, or new processing or new paperwork to provide, or they will remove it, or they will add it, they will bring more to the list. Right. So that makes more exciting <laughs> doing <Yeah>. field work. <laughs> Jeez. Man, well, this is so cool that you guys are going out there and doing that and, and getting this all going. And then um, I guess another question I had just to kind of jump back to the to the capuchin monkeys and their stone tool use. Does this at, does it at all kind of uh, parallel like what humans went through? Like, are we having a, a Planet of the Apes situation going on or what's the what's the deal with that? Planet of the Apes in the sense of I'm not going to make any Charlton Heston jokes. <laughs> um, uh, what do you mean? Oh, so like. I think it's interesting in that you have this counterfactual example of where capuchins are kind of, I didn't mention this, they're, they're New World monkeys. They split off from our lineage 38 million, 30, 39 million years ago. So for studying human, for understanding human behavior, they're really informative because it's kind of like an independent evolution of complex social behavior, cooperative behavior, heavy reliance on social learning and culture. And this thing is just kind of like extractive or destructive foraging. So they just go through the forest, harass everything, rip everything apart, explore everything. And that's how they figure out what they can eat. So mm-hmm. you can tell when pathogens have passed by. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the, the interesting things in understanding human behavior is just be, kind of being able to be, compare this tool using popu- these tool-using populations to non-tool-using populations. Um, to kind of understand the similar and different ecological pressures that make this um, adaptive, um, assuming that it is like, you know, something that is, you know, increasing their ability to survive and reproduce on this island. But I also think there's a lot of, we, have, we haven't mentioned this at all, but we're also working with a team of paleoanthropologists and archaeologists. Um, so there's a lot of questions that we can answer from uh, stone tool use sites that are actively being used. So if you think about you're an archaeologist, paleoanthropologist, you found some uh, percussive stone tool use site that an Australopithecine used three and a half million years ago. This is something that all you have is what got left behind after three and a half million years. So one of the crazy things about this is that you see an active tool use site that this kind of percussive um, early early I get all the, there's a lot of Paleolithic terms I'm bad at, but like early Stone Age, um, I'm not going to use the French word, I won't go into the jargon, but the early Stone Age kind of stone tool use that you'd see in things like Australopithecines, like Lucy, that famous um, fossil that the Leakies discovered. Um, you can see what these tool sites look like in real time, 
And you can map the behavior that we get from these camera traps that these monkeys are to doing onto the anvils and onto the stool, onto the, the stone tools. So you can have a better understanding of the behaviors that produce the patterns we see both in the archaeological record and the paleoanthropological um, record for human evolution. It's also really important for understanding fossils is because a lot of times with fossils, it's like the stuff, the fossils and archaeological sites, it's the stuff that's left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can kind of understand the preservation biases in these types of ecosystems. And as I mentioned, this is the tide and these are streams. So these, and we also think that you know, resources that need stones to be opened up like snails and a lot of these fruits and crabs and also rocks like these things are really conducive to stone tool use but they also erase all evidence of it because streams flood the tides come in every day so you can kind of see what this behavior might have looked like in an ecosystem that's conducive to this behavior that wouldn't be preserved at all so you might be able to you know make some sense out of things that are hard to study in the fossil record for that and also there's like a lot of um really cool branch of archaeology experimental archaeology where you you find something people will have a bunch of stories about what the purpose of it was and you can do an experiment where you'll be like i wonder how these materials affect opening things or i wonder how this stone tool opens up this stuff so we're also kind of exploring some of the ideas of can we do experimental archaeology with capuchin monkeys where they use tools for us in certain ways or use different materials or different anvils and what are the wear patterns that an anvil gets so how can we interpret the fossil record from behavior that we can observe from these camera traps um, on things that are relevant to archaeologists and paleoanthropologists. So we have this whole other um, group of collaborators who are interested in those questions, and we just help with our logistical and ecological knowledge when it comes in handy. And we've been pleasantly surprised. Well, I won't speak for Claudio, but I've been pleasantly surprised with just how like fascinating all the archaeological and paleoanthropological stuff. Like Tamar Doganchik, who is the the head anthropologist, archaeologist, paleoanthropologist, depending on the time era. She went there and she started doing her normal methodical stuff. And then once they realized how many tool sites there were, it was just like, this is just totally insane. Their minds were just totally blown because it's so different than an archaeological site where things have been there for 100,000 to 3 million years. And it's just like, you have, you, and they just had to reframe the way they ask questions about things and also the methods with which they do things. So it's really exciting in that sense too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. That's, I never would have thought of that, but that makes total sense how those two could, how you guys could both help each other out that way. Yeah. Man. Well, Brendan, Claudio, this was awesome. I love learning about this stuff. This is so, it's interesting stuff that I probably wouldn't normally be exposed to, but I'm glad I found you guys and, and I appreciate you guys coming on and, and sharing all your info. Thank you Thanks for having us. <laughs> cool. Um, is there, I think I saw it, but is there a place we can send people to check out any of the uh, video footage that you guys have of the capuchin monkeys? Yeah, so... If it's easier, I can just get the link and put it in the description. If yeah, there's a link. I think most of the papers we've published have been open access. There's a YouTube video up that I had. And um, yeah, there's a, there's a video on YouTube if you search Cueva National Park Tool Use. Okay. Um, we have a paper in Royal Society. We can put some links up. That'll probably be okay. easier. I could also share some video. That would be useful. So 
Okay, cool. Yeah, well, so we'll for people listening, we'll have that stuff in the show notes so they can maybe check out some footage or learn a bit more. But cool. Well, seriously, guys, thank you again. Really appreciate it, and uh, have a good one. Have a good day. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for being here and listening to the end of episode 85. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, maybe you know a friend or a family member who might enjoy that episode too. Why don't you send it along to them? That'd be super helpful. Really appreciate that. Helps kind of spread the word of the podcast and, and get it rolling around in the world. Uh, but that's all I have to say. This is Travis DeRose for CuriosityNess. You can find me on Instagram at TravDeRose is my username. Send me an email with your comments, questions, concerns, ideas to Travis at CuriosityNess.com. And I will see you in episode 86. Bye-bye. <laughs>